Momus, the publication, and Momus, the podcast, <laughs> are both um, funded by advertising. And that's a revenue model that's under quite a bit of strain right now as museums, galleries, and schools are closed. Uh, there are some options that we're trying to entertain, but really this is a moment for readers and listeners who appreciate the work we're doing uh, to show up. We would be so grateful if you would take a look at the Patreon campaign that we're running, Momus Art uh, on Patreon, you can submit as little as a dollar or five dollars per month to to make a real impact and uh, to help me pay Lauren. Hey, Lauren, <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep your croissant fund, yeah. <laughs> Feels vaguely threatening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm not alone in the the freelance uh, world with having all of my work suddenly disappear over a period of, um, you know, a week. And I'm very grateful, not only to to continue to be paid by Sky, but also (laughs) that Momus continues to publish and that there's still, um, yeah, still a desire to engage in these questions, even though perhaps the context for them has changed irreparably. So yeah, yeah, the support that you can provide means everything. It is a unique opportunity for a publication that is made in isolation and enjoyed (laughs) in isolation um, to thrive and to respond nimbly, I think, to the questions that we're facing right now as such a small team, we can, we can pivot. Um, and so I'm looking forward to seeing the work that that we conjure up in the next few months. But yeah, it really will take um, readers stepping in at this point to make sure that we can we can not just survive but thrive. So please join us at uh, Patreon.com/slash Momus Art. And thanks for listening. Well, welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wentmore. Um, so we've been told by trusted sources that we need to loosen up <laughs> our introductions a little bit. <laughs> we knew. <laughs> we knew it's true. We knew it was too tight. <laughs> it was too tight. <laughs> and what better time to throw away the script than during a global pandemic? Mm, sitting in our pan- pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I think that yeah, being loose with the introduction is good for Sky because she's got great puns like that. It's <laughs> not a thing. And also, <laughs> she's got that smooth CVC tone. Right? <laughs> okay, well, let me drop into that. Uh, <laughs> for me, it's terrifying. I never do public speaking without a script. Where did that uh, anal retention start for you? Because I, you are excellent off the page, but but I've seen you. Um, you present and yeah you do seem to hew very closely to a powerpoint (laughs) yeah i think you described my presentation style as doing like surgery in space (laughs) (laughs) yeah where did that when did you stop trusting your own ability to uh to be you know charismatic uh in an unscripted way (laughs) (laughs) not to put too fine fine points on that (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to move on. (laughs) 
so here we are being really loose and free and we're also uh introducing the first episode of our third season and uh yeah sky's gonna tell you a little bit more well about that. i mean we kind of we kind of pulled the the lever on this suddenly just in the last couple of days i think we were we were hoping to continue with season two which was circling the question what makes great art for a couple more episodes and then the world went and changed on us um and it just didn't feel like the conversation carried as much relevance anymore and suddenly we knew that uh it was time to be asking what has changed what does this change and what would you want to see changed um because it's it's a new world um and there is a sense of helplessness i think to to what we're all experiencing right now there's also a tremendous sense of collectivity um and i do see it as an opportunity for rescripting and directing some agency through through how this manifests in the art world i think we were overdue for some very real seismic shifting um but it required something happening to us in order for some of that to be jump-started, I think. How, how do you see this, Lauren? I think it's hard, basically, to talk about anything else but this right now, mm-hmm. um, as much as one might want to turn away from it. Uh, it's the only thing I can really think of. And I think that it's funny because <sighs> talking about pulling the release lever uh, pretty quickly, I was planning on interviewing our guest Eleanor Nairn for the end of season two. Mm -hmm. And she's a curator. She's the curator at the Barbican Art Gallery in London. And immediately we started having technical difficulties, like technical communication difficulties, Mm -hmm. um, and really struggling. And that struggle kind of pushed us over the first week of the pandemic when we probably could still have gotten away with talking about something else. Oh. <laughs> but then deep into the second week, it was like, no, okay, if we're going to do this, it's going to have to be right. Yeah, a different conversation. You know, that reality becomes clear. To, to Eleanor's credit, she was, you know, she's deeply eloquent person was able to pivot immediately into kind of the deep thoughts she's been having. And I think there is sort of a backwards logic around Eleanor being the first guest for our like looser introduction Mm. because she is sort of simultaneously one of the most approachable and charming and kind of effervescent, naturally effervescent people I've ever met. But she is also like serious about art. She is actually an art historian, not the way that I will say that I'm an art historian because I have a degree in art history. She's an art historian because she has curated a major retrospective of Lee Krasner and she's now working on a book on Jean Dubuffet. Mm-hmm. She's a real, uh, she takes these things seriously. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know if it's okay to say this, but uh, I, I had pictured her as an older woman when you were first describing her. In <laughs> yeah. part, you know, Eleanor just for me calls up a different generation of lady. And then yeah. you're mentioning that she's like an art historian working on Jean Dubuffet. And I was like, ah, yes, well, a woman in her 60s, we do need to get that <laughs> but um but she has yeah she brings like a lightness to that gravitas which I really appreciate Mm. and then she even uh she even read a little Emily Dickinson poem um, which was quite nice I look forward to this please uh take it away this is Lauren with Eleanor Nairn 
I think that I think maybe a nice place to start would be for you to just tell me about where you are and what the past week has been like for you. Yeah, definitely. So um, maybe we start by saying that we've been trying to organize this conversation for a while. <laughs> it's, it's been a little complicated and it's it has been something that's made me think a lot about technological privilege. Um, hmm. So in my day-to-day life, I'm a curator at the Barbican and I had kind of three main projects that I was working on. So I have a retrospective of Lee Krasner, which was at the Barbican last summer. And we partnered with three other European institutions on that. So it was in Frankfurt in the autumn. It is currently in Bern in Switzerland, although closed to the public, and was due mm. to open in Bilbao in May. So that's scenario one. Um, <laughs> scenario two is that I was... Uh, I've been curating as a freelance curator an exhibition of Eva Hesse and Hannah Wilkie that was due to open at the Aquavella Galleries in New York next week. Half the works are there and half of the works are in closed museums with closed registrarial departments. Oh, my God. And my third situation is that I am working on a retrospective of Jean Dubuffet for the Barbican, which opens in six months in mm-hmm. London and then travels to Quebec. So those three situations have become extremely complicated, which is one of the reasons it became challenging for us to speak. And <laughs> also it suddenly threw a kind of highlight on obviously how do we speak to each other and what kind of mechanisms do we have with which to do that. And I became aware of things that I don't necessarily have to be aware of. Like my laptop was so outdated that I couldn't download Zoom or Skype (laughs) or run any of these supposedly miraculous uh, programs. So like all fully grown adults, I am currently conducting this interview on my mother's laptop, which has been (laughs) sent to my flat in in an Uber. So... I think that is what we call the definition of technological privilege. But not everybody has a mother with a up-to-date MacBook who is herself in social isolation, so really has very little use for her laptop. Uh, yeah. Not everybody has that situation. And, and, and what happens to them and their international friends and colleagues and, and their desire to connect? Right. I think that's part of... Uh... Part of me is always very um, prone to to thinking in conspiracy theory terms. But <laughs> this is a great time for you. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is really we're cruising right into my wheelhouse. But, um, <laughs> and I suppose like religion is not necessarily a conspiracy theory, but like if one were religious <laughs> or like if you believed in a higher power, you would think mm. that like. Yeah, like the ability to communicate digitally or whatever mm. over computer is somehow like quite a miraculous gift in this time. And were somebody like planning some kind of apocalypse, you would want to give people the tools to survive. And one of those essential tools, it turns out, is the ability to like FaceTime. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think we just... um yeah. This time has made me very conscious of this need to to check technological privilege and to remember just how many people don't have that essential tool. 
Um, And how many people do but aren't necessarily aware of what the kind of fallout of that might be? I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday who is a fantastic artist and and theatre director and we were speaking about the the speed with which institutions had wanted to direct their audiences to digital programming. Yeah. And he, as somebody who's very engaged with physical theatre and physical practice, yeah. was just kind of wonderfully laughing at the kind of irony inherent, particularly within theatres doing this, although it, the same applies to many cultural spaces. And of course, some of that is born out of just a pragmatism. And I know that working within an institution, you know, we have messages to deliver that aren't entirely positive. We're closing our doors. We won't be right. able to, to have audiences in these spaces. And, and we want to kind of sweeten the pill. So, so what can we offer you in this, in this challenging time? And, <laughs> and the first thing that comes to mind is, hey, look at all this content on our website that none of you have paid any attention to. <laughs> Let, let's really kind of dredge this out and glory in it. And, and some of that is wonderful because, you know, I certainly know that at the Barbican we've produced some amazing things that because of our busy lives haven't, haven't had the attention that maybe they deserved. But there's also, I think, um, a lot of what I'm trying to think about at the moment is the quick and the slow. There's a, um, I practice a lot of yoga and in yoga, we think about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system is what is driven by adrenaline and cortisol, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that is our fight or flight response. And for me, the digital programming is our fight or flight response. So what I'm trying to think about is what is our parasympathetic response in as cultural institutions? Once we slow down and allow ourselves some time to reflect on, on this incredibly, I'm, I'm stumbling because I'm trying to think of a word that would do justice to the scale of change, but there's this drastic set of changes that have come into play mm-hmm what what is our um what is the slower softer calmer response to how we recalibrate in in the wake of that and i think we're only we're maybe not even beginning to feel that out we're in the kind of earliest mm-hmm. earliest most nebulous stages of of beginning that thinking and i think that's that's the bit that excites me and that's the bit that i want to see more of and that's not necessarily going to happen over facetime right I mean, how does it happen then, I guess? Does it well, does it require communication? And if this is our only form of communication, then does it need to happen? Yeah. I mean, there might be a place for that. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't shoot me, Apple. But um, I guess if we talk about pragmatics, right? So um, yeah. if we talk about other workers and cultural institutions internationally, I'm sure many people will have experienced the same thing that I did, which is mm-hmm. on the one hand, we've got people saying, here are some tools to be able to tackle the boredom and potential isolation and loneliness and these vast expanses of time that you're going to experience now you're working from home. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, a calendar filling up with meetings virtual, <laughs> such that 
actually, do you know, has this been for me so far a time of reflection? No, it's it's been a time of faulty connections and stumbling video calls. <laughs> and, and, and that's fine. That's part that's part one of us feeling this out. That's okay. We don't need to be critical about it, but we do need to have a sense of humor about it. And I think realize that um we need to come through into that next stage. Again, that's the parasympathetic yeah. response. That's that's us rushing, 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 and you know, a, a kind of effervescence of communication, but that is that is quite shallow or quite thin in terms of the actual depth or meaning of connection that's being made. Right. I suppose it's the it's the um, desire to maintain the status quo when in yeah. fact the status quo is not possible. It's not possible, right? We need to let that go. And that's great. And there's lots of good feeling and good heart that drives that. So I'm not critical of that per se. I'm just interested in what happens yeah. when we move beyond that. What happens when we switch off our electronics? Because mm-hmm. maybe our electronics aren't going to have the answers for how to deal with this global crisis. And how to think through what cultural spheres might look like in the wake of this. And actually the reason why I'm so conscious about this space of electronics is because there is a risk, a very real risk that our world is dismantled. We fill ourselves this kind of strange period. We fill this time with noise Um, Mm. and we don't use that time wisely and as a result when the lights switch on again in our museums and galleries and public spaces we rush back into them and we go back to our old ways because they're habits that we've learned and we know um and you know some of those are things that need to be dismantled for instance the amount that we fly internationally has to change we know that has to change And yet we have been doing embarrassingly little (laughs) to make those changes. (laughs) So I guess part of this desire to kind of encourage myself and others to think about, yes, switch on and connect in those ways, but also not, not to the detriment of also taking the time to switch off and to, to withdraw and to contemplate and, to think, to think through some of these bigger questions that are being posed. They're frightening. They're definitely frightening, but they, they're, they're, there, they're there to be thought about. And, and yeah, like you say, then we connect, then we discuss those things, then we come together and we, we ask each other these difficult questions or we express the things that we're a little frightened to really um, confess to. But I think first we need to have those spaces to be thinking these things through alone. It's like everybody endlessly turning up to meetings without having done any preparation or read the agenda in advance, right? Like we all have been in those meetings and we all know how little comes out of them. (laughs) Was there a moment recently um, when you, because it sounds like this, these are things that you've been thinking about already, say before things started to really change with regards to the pandemic, but was there a moment, something you saw or something that happened where you realized that punch in the gut of like, okay, things are really changing. Like this needs to change and it's, it's kind of, yeah, irreparably moved. Yeah. I mean, as you identify, like these, these are things that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, yeah. 
Broadly, I am a curator because I believe in bringing people together and telling stories mm. and um, finding spaces for meaningful connection. Mm. And one of the reasons why I became particularly interested in painting practice was mm. because it does tend to be, not always, but a kind of time-based medium in a different sort of way. And it has an inherent attention span that can, I think, be a salve to many of us who are used to this incredibly frenetic, quick fire media environment, that kind of sense of saturation or overload or any of those phrases we want to use. But, but, mm-hmm. but painting for me started to be a really interesting medium to think through how we confront the challenges of that very hectic, media-saturated environment that not all of us, but so many of us, confront on a day-to-day basis Hmm. and so that's one of the reasons why I'm really interested in like what digital platforms might offer in terms of being able to kind of extend and develop and expand what we're doing within the gallery space but absolutely not replace what happens at the heart of that yeah um and so for me personally what happens when your exhibition space closes and you don't have that possibility of being able to connect with your audience in that way I have quite complicated feelings and I I don't have I have a lot of questions and I don't have easy answers to how to solve that which is perhaps where the skeptic skepticism comes from about those who are too quick to offer yeah uh, solutions so an example would be that Hessa Wilkie project, you know, I was very, very interested in their respective relationships to the body and touch and the Mm. haptic. Um, There are many points of connection between those two women artists who are both kind of broadly working in a sort of post-minimalist vein in New York in the late 1960s and 1970s. And one of the really powerful things that connects them is their excitement about liquid latex (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it comes into the market in the late 1960s. And, you know, Eva Hesse has this show lined up, which is her only solo show that she has at the Fishback Gallery in 1968, And they have to delay the show by six months because she's so excited by the material possibilities of working with Mm. this liquid to hard kind of, is it paint? Is it a sculptural form medium Mm -hmm. that she needs more time to play with it? And likewise, you know, um, Hannah Wilkie is busy in her studio making a plaster of Paris floor so that she can arrest the edges of the drip you know, so that it can dry, but still have the kind of temporality of it as a, as a liquid medium. So when a show like that is so much about touch and the idea of the body, and it's not irrelevant that both of those women uh, have Jewish heritage. I mean, Eva Hesse came over in the kinder transport, fled the war. Um, Hannah Wilkie talks a lot about her experiences of death and the idea of Eros as this driving force against it, you know, so there are very, very, very powerful um, ideas bound up within these kind of somewhat anthropomorphic works. How do we translate that (laughs) to a digital space or do we not? Do we wait? Do we, do we um, allow conversations to happen in different spaces 
but I guess I didn't have a moment where I felt this is real. I just had a kind of immediate feeling of a kind of, you know, a wall coming down. I, I felt, um, I felt, I felt dumbfounded basically. Um, Mm. and I haven't yet really been able to kind of reconcile that or think that through, except of course, my main objective at the moment is to think, what happens when these shows reopen and and how do I keep them on the road? (laughs) Because I think on the other side of this, people are going to need culture more than, more than ever. That is something that I've heard a lot and I'm inclined to agree, but I I also feel like um, it comes from a certain sentiment about art that I find they've always found really troubling this yeah. idea of, of art as somehow like a social service or, <laughs> or like a medicine or, you know, that it is somehow good for you. Um, I don't believe that to be true. I find art that that believes that to be true to be boring. <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, I, I want that to be true now somehow. Like, I, I want to know yeah. that it's still relevant, but I, I'm not sure how. It's interesting because, so for me, and I think it's I think it's a really good thing to talk about because I think some of these ideas are very dirty terms in the art world. Right. And I became, I guess a few years ago, interested in sort of investigating some of these, like, sordid undersides like for instance, I know exactly <laughs> like biography so huh. biography is another really good example of an area that was for such a long time just completely out of bounds you know it was seen to be like you know don't besmirch the picture plane with your salacious interest in how many <laughs> cigarettes a day Joan Mitchell smoked while she made this painting you know it is irrelevant <laughs> Now, I guess I come back to that and I say, is it irrelevant that Joan Mitchell smoked? How many did she smoke a day? Where did she smoke? Did she smoke in the studio? Did she smoke outside? If she smoked outside, how many times did that mean she left her picture and re-entered? If she smoked inside, what distance did she smoke at? Did she smoke close? Did she smoke far? Like those kinds of seemingly trivial details about an artist and their working space are for me these incredibly precious moments, not always, but potentially to be able to get into a piece of work in a very different way. And there are kind of different lenses to think about it. I mean, and I guess I started to come at it with the perspective of, you know, woman makes history, but not in conditions of her own making. You know, like that every artist works in a social cultural context and the more we can do to start to render that context vivid for the museum goer or the reader of the book or however they might be engaging with that particular work, we actually help to open it up in all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. So that for me is a, um, and, and I it's hard to say, um, and let's speak to your listeners in 50 years time, but I think I'm on the right side of history in that regard. I mean, if you see the direction that exhibitions are going in now, more and more people are allowing some of that kind of biography to enter into the, into the space. And of course it's, you know, it's not needless, but it's, it's where it really adds meaning and value. And 
I think likewise for me, and it's not disconnected, you know, this idea of what is the artist feeling? What is their life force? What are they experiencing? And, and how is that translated on the picture plane? Not necessarily directly. It's not, we cannot Mm -hmm. presume a kind of like for like or one for one correlation because these things are more mysterious than that. But, um, but, but is there something bound up within that work of art that might speak to a person in an ineffable way and that, that might be somehow medicinal? It might be deeply troubling and disturbing mm-hmm. and all sorts of other things, but there might be emotion. Dare I use, again, the worst of all these terms, um, <laughs> bound up within something that somebody else could connect with that they haven't necessarily been able to encounter or connect with elsewhere yeah and I think that for me is an idea that um yeah I am sort of controversial as it may be like increasingly finding just really yeah really really valuable yeah I think it's funny as you're saying that I'm thinking about like a direct experience in my life of um to do with Lee Krasner actually interestingly but that she had this uh the Rimbaud painting era poem yeah yeah uh on her on her studio wall and this was the first time I had been made aware of that poem or even that writer you know Mm. I was um and just the line what beast must I adore Mm. is is this line that goes through my head very often mm. the same as uh, you know a Jenny Holzer a, uh, you know abuse of power comes as no surprise yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. you'll be in a situation and I'll think what beast must I adore yeah and how yeah that's yeah, what compromises what sacrifices what and yeah that's a very good example of her as an artist pinning up another artist against her wall and you know she yeah. actually had the rest of it was written in black and she had that line, what beast must I adore written in blue. So oh, she really? also, yeah, she also highlighted that. Um, wow. It was an artist friend of hers who transcribed it on the studio uh, wall for her. Um, there's a great story about um, uh, her having, you know, people visit the studio and if they disliked it, she'd just throw them out in their ear. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, what beast must I adore, but also non-negotiable, right? Like yeah. only certain farmyard creatures are allowed in this space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, it's a question you need to think about very, very carefully. So I mean, well, like, and, and, and here's a question, right? Because in a way that gets to the heart of a lot of what we're thinking about right now is mm-hmm. what, what comfort can we offer? Where, where can we draw comfort, mm-hmm. basically? And the skepticism I was um, raising was about, can we really draw comfort from digital iterations of, um, you know, from a, can we draw comfort from a walkthrough of an exhibition in the same way that we would from the exhibition itself? Mm-hmm. And you counter rightly and interestingly with, well, how much can we draw comfort from the works full stop when we're right. in that exhibition space or or rather exactly. should we kind of be careful about the lazy presumptions that those works do necessarily offer that because they might not right um, or why or let's perhaps not require that yes definitely definitely let's not see that as a prerequisite for being able to allow those works into the space because I also yeah. hold dear 
you know, artists and writers and others who are, yeah, who are difficult and disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. And that has a really important and, and, and valuable place too, um, especially as there's a risk at the moment, I think sometimes that um, culture can easily become um, censored or can become just there can be a need to sort of sanitize it and and an importance to allow um stories to remain complicated and unreconciled Mm -hmm. and and just as difficult as as kind of human lives are but at the same time recognizing um that for me for me culture is something that can um that can offer very considerable comfort and for instance, mm-hmm. at the moment, I've been um, I've been thinking a lot about ideas of isolation and artists who've lived in isolation and kind of what words they have. What do we take from Joseph Cornell? What do we take from Emily Dickinson <laughs> in a moment mm-hmm. like this? And you know, you look at something like um, Dickinson's um, "Hope is the thing with feathers," and you know, maybe mm-hmm. there's a maybe there's a reason why she's a more astute observer of a situation like ours now. And tell me more about Joseph Cornell. Well, just, um, I guess in a way, you know, Joseph Cornell is obviously an artist who lived a relatively, although less solitary life than has often been believed on Utopia Mm. Parkway. I really valued the Royal Academy did an exhibition here in London a few years ago in which they put quite a lot of emphasis on the artists who who visited him out in uh at the studio there which is you know everybody from Yayu Kusama to uh to Andy Warhol but um but he certainly he considered himself in isolation and he Mm -hmm. created from a space of isolation and within the work you know, and interestingly, he makes a work which is dedicated to Emily Dickinson. Um, and it's a, a work which has um, a bird within a kind of cage within it. So it's a kind of almost like a mise on a beam of isolation within an isolation, you know. Um, but within the thing that's nice about the use of the kind of bird metaphor is, um, of course, she's talking about the psychology of escape and about this being so much about so much about mental spaces and so much about how we create a sense of psychological liberty or psychological freedom or Mm -hmm. the feeling of air within our wings um focusing on that which we can do rather than that which we can't those kinds of ideas those those are the things um I guess that bring me comfort and also a knowledge that you know my my um research into uh art is really a project that's relatively limited but but over the course of you know 10 or 15 years one of the constant um returning motifs is of course that constraint is very inducive for creativity if used correctly um and that's a kind of mantra that i often come back to when working within an institutional context, because of course we have all sorts of constraints that um, (laughs) you don't have if you're working as a freelance curator, you know, we have to, everything from thinking about what a kind of in-house graphic language might be that you need to work within to 
thinking about the kind of health and safety um, expectations of working within a public building. And there's ways in which curators, as we know, can sometimes rail against those things. And I often try and remind myself and also when I do bits of curatorial teaching, you know, remind students that that's those boundaries are are there to kind of help us and, and we can use them to think really creatively. I don't think a project that was given an, a, a kind of blank check of a budget would do better than a project that is, you know, reasonably resourced but comes with restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that there is a certain kind of, um, I don't know, perversion. I use that in a positive sense, but with the institutional curator within that mindset, I mean, one must love to be constrained or restrained or (laughs) you have to to like that kind of scenario right um and yeah and not everybody survives in that context (laughs) exactly and yeah you can survive if you acknowledge that that is something that you um thrive in it's a situation Mm. that you thrive in Mm. yeah I wonder if you could visit any place now knowing that you would be alone there, be it a museum or a gallery or a monument or a library or, you know, the scope is kind of as large as you want to make it. Can you think of one place you would absolutely want to visit? Hmm. I'm thinking about um, the first time I went to Cairo was uh, during a difficult time for the country and there was not a lot of tourism there. And uh, I would, for instance, go visit the pyramids and there would be no other tourists there or go to the National Museum and there would be absolutely nobody Mm. there except, you know, me and some stray cats Mm. napping in the mummies. (laughs) And those were kind of very, yeah, very stark Mm -hmm. experiences Mm -hmm. of of kind of cultural tourism that um, I would not have had had I not been alone. Yeah. I think um, I draw so much comfort from other people and from <laughs> and from fellow audiences that kind of as you were asking that question, I was you know I had a kind of roller deck in my mind, sort of <laughs> of artists' houses and homes and libraries and museums and galleries and all of these different spaces. And as they were kind of spiraling through in my mind, I guess what I was thinking was, um, actually, I don't feel irritated when I'm in an exhibition space alongside other visitors. I, Mm -hmm. I guess that's partly a curatorial thing, maybe, that I'm I'm so interested in how they are responding. Like, you know, what do you, where do you, like, where do you laugh? How much are you reading? How much are you looking? Where are you just sitting? Like, which things do you skip over? Which things do you sit with? It's not that I am not interested in witnessing those things in myself because I am, but I'm interested in, in feeling my experience in community. So I Hmm. think um, most places, if I'm allowed, in this hypothetical scenario, I'd quite like to keep a light community with me. And I suppose, um, I suppose the only place that I would like to maybe go alone is 
uh, Tate Modern. I mm. go to Tate a lot. Um, I was born and grew up in London. And so for many people, um, you know, Tate is my national collection of art. Um, right. And sometimes if I'm trying to think through an idea or a challenge or quite often a series of emails that have landed in my inbox presenting (laughs) seemingly insurmountable issues, Um, you know, I might go and sit in the Rothko room or kind of wander through one of the collection displays and I think, you know, recently there was a a thing about kind of extraordinary architectural spaces globally, you know, one of those kind of slightly cheap BuzzFeedy style things being done by a newspaper that should know better. Um, (laughs) But kind of interesting, nonetheless, you know, what are the top 10 best buildings in in the UK? And and Tate Modern, the original building came out as number one. and, And I did think, yeah, quite right, actually, because that I have never walked into that space and not felt um, not felt moved. Um, and not mm. felt that it's it's a spectacular space and it's a space that carries memories in all sorts of interesting ways. I cannot be in the Turbine Hall and not think of Doris Salcedo's crack and not think of Oliver Eliasson's son and not think of Tino Segal's performances and watching them from the balconies above yeah. or currently Cara Walker or, you know, it's, it's, it's such a... Um, so for me, if I'm going to be in a space alone, it's because I want to witness that palimpsest of experiences that I have had in that space. I'd be more interested in that than, you know, visiting the Hermitage or whatever else your travel agency might be offering. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel? I mean, I'm interested in the kind of, not contradictions, but um, the... Yeah, I guess contradictions in a lot of the things that you're saying, you know, that, that mm-hmm. you're you're interested in kind of preserving moments of isolation or at least creating space around time to think and to re and to not react, in fact, but to respond uh, you know, mindfully. Um, but then also your deep need to be around people and to be in a space with people with art. Um and I wonder, yeah, I wonder how do you see your your engagement with art and history and curating going forward mm. through through this and after this? Yeah, I mean, I think those contradictions are just inherent within all of us. We have desires for both, you know. Right. We need, we all have a kind of inner introvert and extrovert and um Again, I mean, for me, yogic philosophy is so helpful in these moments. But in in yoga, we talk of stiram sukham, of kind of effort and ease, and this kind of that each pose you should be aiming to get a kind of balance between the two. Mm. Um, and I think that's also, you know, before the current kind of quarantining situation, which we're in in, in London and in many other places worldwide. Um, before that situation, that was definitely what I was aiming to achieve in my life, a mix of um, wanting to kind of commune with friends and family and the public and be in those kinds of communities, but also mm-hmm. of creating those spaces where I could come into myself and and listen, you know, not just talking, but listening. Yeah. And um, what is unusual about our current context is that we 
have these sets of restrictions placed on many of us, which means that the balance has been shifted to the other side of the seesaw. I would say most Mm. of us or many of us would probably predominantly be in social spaces and have a much smaller space of our time in which we're in uh, more solitary uh, moments. And, you know, I often think of this line, Maggie Nelson, I mean, I think of all the time for all the yeah. obvious reasons, but, um, Absolutely. you know, she says, uh, loneliness is solitude with an attitude problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, um, it's such a fantastic line. And I think um, certainly for people like myself, you know, I'm a, a deeply gregarious personality. I, <laughs> I, I just come alive in company. I love company. I can spend an enormous amount of my time in company very, very happily. Mm-hmm. Um, I come back to that line of, of Maggie Nelson's to think, well, hey, chick, this is, this is your moment. Like this is your moment to shine in a, in a solitude with a healthy attitude. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's where I start to think, monitor the electronics. Great, mm-hmm. have your virtual drinks, but, but put a cap on it, right? Like don't do that to the detriment of also making the most of these, of these spaces to kind of think and reflect. And, and the reflecting that I'm wanting to do in terms of, you know, you're asking about kind of going, going forward and we're moving into quite an unforeseeable future, (laughs) but, um, but the kind of thinking and reflecting that I'm wanting to do is on very much on a personal as well as a professional level about, um, you know, things are being dismantled in our current context. And what are the ways in which that dismantling is helpful? Hmm. Um, So for instance, I mentioned earlier about flying. How does that make me feel about flying going forward or how much flying I do or don't need to do? How do I prioritize differently in that regard? Um, what balance do I have for reading or for research or for artist studio visits or for meetings with colleagues or, you know, these are questions that so many people are asking and, and, you know, it is as old as time curators Mm -hmm. complaining that they don't get enough time to be kind of (laughs) researching or or thinking that is certainly not, you know, unique to our current global pandemic. But maybe this is a moment where it is easier to put forward a kind of argument across organizations or across whichever kind of community infrastructures you're working in to be saying, can we meet less and meet more meaningfully? Mm-hmm. Um, can, we do, can we do more in advance so that when we come together, we can push forward further? Um, and what might that mean and what might that look like? And, and how, how, can we, how can we model up different scenarios? You know, I look at the moment at our current chancellor, who I think is maybe about the same age as me in his early 30s, you know, and trying to think through like extraordinary questions. How do we, um, how do we, how do we compensate the British public for their loss of earnings? And how does that differ across freelance workers across, um, you know, like those who are continuing to work, those who can't work, et cetera, et cetera. These are complicated questions. And it's, it's exciting for me to think about modeling up some different, scenarios and what I really really want the most I don't want to go back to business as usual I I want to go back 
with this memory of this time imprinted in a in a in a valuable way hmm. I think that would be the perfect place to leave it um can I read you Emily Dickinson's poem do you know it please okay hope is the thing with feathers 314 by Emily Dickinson hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all and sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Oh, thank you, Eleanor. It's just, it's so nice. (laughs) 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 I just think, oh, Emily, thank you. It breaks your heart, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And it also says, you know, we're getting so much information from the media that says we are living in an unprecedented time, et cetera, et cetera. And we are to an extent. But other people have lived in isolation. Other people have gone through quarantines. Other people have experienced moments of profound disconnect. And let's look them up and and listen to them. Uh (laughs) And not rush forward presuming that we, arrogant we, have all the answers to a problem that we might not have faced before. Right. Or that we have to reinvent the wheel somehow. I mean, the nature of time is that it is unprecedented, but that is the thing that makes all time the same. I mean, keep that. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you do, editor, keep that. Yeah, I've now earned myself a nice afternoon nap. (laughs) Oh my God, definitely. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shuram. We would like to thank Eleanor Nairn for her contribution to this episode. If you'd like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please contact me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca. This has been episode 17 of Momus the Podcast.